Professional wrestling is the one true sport. Other sports have their share of intense dramatic moments, but nothing can compare with professional wrestling. Welcome to Wrestling History X, where three friends come together to talk about the stories behind the matches. I'm Matt. I'm Mikey Mist. And I am Super Shane. Welcome to episode 235, Wrestling World 1997. No tagline. If there is one, it's in Japanese. Yeah, like lost in translation. <laughs> yeah. But we're 1997. Who'd have thunk it? The year I turned 20. Oh, the glory days. I started driving a car this year. I did not do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I was, what, I guess probably in seventh grade, I think. Dang. Yeah, or no, maybe, maybe sixth grade. Maybe 12? Probably. That's I don't know. <laughs> I just know that I, everything is either pre or, pre or post 9-11. It's like, well, 9-11 happened when I was like a... Freshman, yeah, freshman in high school, I guess. It sounds right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it sounds correct. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm just working, working I, it back. I was general manager of a restaurant at the time. So I was high in art class. High at work. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. Staring at a TV. All my customers that called me were high. So because I was doing direct TV. Ah. So. <laughs> direct TV sales or phone calls. Yeah. Back then, yeah. I mean, possibly still today. I don't know. I'm gonna guess it's all on the the world wide web. Yeah, I bet if anybody has Directv, it's just because they live in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, well, this is the best we're gonna get. Anyway, so, this was the first Wrestling World produced by New Japan Pro Wrestling and Big Japan Pro Wrestling, but it's the second annual Wrestling World overall. Last, the previous 1996 was a Wrestling World as well. It would take place on January 4th, 1997, from Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, Japan, with an attendance of 62,500. And as Michael's kind of insinuating, New Japan basically always holds a big show on January 4th, and this is actually their sixth annual one. Oh, okay. I mean, I didn't know exactly how long they've been doing it. I'm sure we've covered all of them. Yeah. I just don't, uh, didn't, couldn't pick a number. Because they didn't start really officially numbering them, probably until they started calling it Wrestle Kingdom. Yep. And that'll be, we're still 2005-ish, I think, is when the first Wrestle Kingdom was. Yeah, what was the last one? I think it was 19, 18. 19, yeah. It 18. was either 18 or 19. Yeah, so I think yeah. it's 2005, 2004, something like that. Nice. When they changed it to Wrestle Kingdom. There's a still we still get a few more names in between Wrestling World and Oh I bet Wrestle Kingdom. Wrestling World's not the greatest name for a show. It's fine. Passable. Yeah. It sounds more like a uh, a wrestling tabloid or <laughs> Yeah, like a, a Bill After mag. Yeah. I mean Maybe. there's a chance Bill After was there. I believe it. Our boy Dave was probably there. Probably. Everything's half a star better in the Tokyo Dave. <laughs> 
But we are in Tokyo. Yeah, we are. So to start us off, 1997, did you do what you do? I do. I did do what I do. Yes, we are back in Tokyo, back in Japan, here for uh, Wrestling World 97. And it's been a while since I've gone to this place. I think the last Tokyo show, actually, so maybe not that long, but long enough for me to, to need more. Uh, maybe a full canonical year in uh, podcasting. Who knows? Yeah. Probably, it was probably. only a couple months ago for okay. podcast-wise because it was so what, yeah, the G1. Yeah, that's true. We did do G1. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Could so have been a G1. That. Hasn't been as long as I thought, but you know, here we are. We're, we're starting the new year off right, or at least I think we are. Ling's Cakery here in Oklahoma City. Uh, the last time I went there, I brought their Japanese cheesecake, which was this big, fluffy, delicious, powdered sugar-topped, fruit-topped, not-so-sweet, just delicious cheesecake. I saw they had a, a full pastry case full of other things, so I had to go back and see what all of those other things were, and I stumbled upon a couple, well, I shouldn't even say a couple, there's like an entire pastry case full of different flavors of a mill crepe. Uh, the name comes from mill, M-I-L-L-E, which means, I guess, 1,000 in French. It's a many-layered crepe cake. Uh, the mill crepe cake is a Japanese dessert made from stacks of ultra-thin pancakes layered with deliciously sweet fillings like cream and fruits. I asked the, uh, the gentleman in the chef's jacket behind the counter what flavors I needed to try for my first time of trying them, and he suggested that chocolate and strawberry are two of their more popular flavors. They also had some other other ones in there. There was a, a mango one, there was a peach one, there was a dragon fruit or passion fruit or something like that in there. There was one that was a, a durian. Oh, the stinky fruit. Yeah, that one I was kind of curious about but then i was like no just in case it sucks yes i, I haven't wanna, i don't want to spend nine bucks on a slice i also haven't had the actual fruit yes so it's like well, i don't even know what to yeah expect to compare to <laughs> yeah the reactions i've seen from durian just they don't sound very good they don't look very good as it's you know people throwing up on tv so if you ever uh, if you ever think about it. hitting the asian market and buying one let me know before you bring it into my home. <laughs> we'll eat it on the back porch. There we go. We'll eat it across the street, just on the curb. Yeah. We'll need the open air. But yep, uh, Ling's Cakery, if you're ever in Oklahoma City, this this cake, I took pictures of both of them and just the the number of layers. There's at least 30 layers of, of crepe with you know on each one. The strawberry one had a really light strawberry flavor. It was almost more buttery than it was sweet. And then some sort of a little, I don't know what that was on top, like a matcha yeah. gel type stuff on the, the mm-hmm. top of it. Like a thin um, layer of kind of like a, well, what's the stuff they use to decorate cakes that doesn't taste very good? Um, fondant? Yeah. It's not, like a very thin that, but it didn't, fondant has a particular poor taste. Uh, this <laughs> did not. It was just kind of a textured thing. The chocolate one, I described it as kind of a almost a tiramisu type taste, just without the coffee flavor to it. Yeah. I, you know what it tastes like to me is... Not in a bad way, but it tastes like cheap chocolate ice cream. Yeah, yeah. I can totally see that. <laughs> yeah, but just with like a better texture or whatever. And then, and it's like not obviously not you know nearly as cold. <laughs> putting skins in between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ling's Cakery. Give it a shot if you're ever in Oklahoma City. Hearing it 
on the microphone, taking a bite won't really work, so I'm going to see if this whole put the cake up to the microphone and fork through it if we can hear anything, because, you know, why not? So here we go. One, two, let's do this. No, talk with my mouth full, because that's what I do. <laughs> I feel like it's a good summer dessert, because it's not, it's not too heavy, similar to that cheesecake, where it's like, oh, normally you eat a piece of cheesecake, and you feel like you ate a piece of cheesecake. I smashed two slices of this cake, and uh, you'll find. Now that you said <laughs> that about the ice cream thing, that's what I'm tasting, is it's like a fudge pop. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like <laughs> the little cups you'd get at a birthday party. Yep. Yeah. With the wooden spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, something that would happen right around the same time as Wrestling World 97, Jackie Chan's first strike would be released to theaters the next week. Is this a Super Cop 4? Or, I mean, Police Story 4? It's Police Story 4. Yeah. And in America, it was called... First Strike. Jackie Chan's First Strike. Take it away, Japan, it was... I haven't seen it. (laughs) I worked at Blockbuster when it came out, and I remember the cover box, but... I like Jackie Chan a lot, I didn't really... I wasn't much of a Jackie Chan fan at the time and didn't really know all that much of his stuff so I just kind of skipped over it until I can uh, vouch for Police Story 1 through 3 incredible <laughs> I, I imagine that if uh, 1 through 3 uh, stayed strong 4 is probably pretty good too I'm gonna look and see what Jackie Chan movie I watched first Rumble in the Bronx probably my cushion. I was gonna say, isn't that the first American? It might be one, or at least the one they brought over here. Yeah, I played on television a lot too. Rumble in the Bronx rules. It was the one with the, they like hide the drugs or the money in the kid's wheelchair or whatever. To I me, mean, unless you were into like kung fu movies, then you probably didn't see Drunken Master and. No, I mean I've seen Drunken Master, but that and, was like in high school, like and like you know. until after like you got to know who Jackie Chan was through Rumble in the Bronx and. First Strike and even and yeah. Rush Hour, of course. Like yeah. everyone's seen Rush Hour. Oh, yeah, let's see. Actually, here. never seen Rush Hour. I take it. Back. I I've never seen Rush Hour. Yeah, I saw parts of it on TV as a kid, like, but I never saw it. Every time I say that, people are like, "What the hell?" I do like Jackie Chan. Don't think I do. I watched the new Turtles movie, and he does the voice of Splinter in it. That was cool because they actually the couple times that they have. They animate him fighting or whatever. They have him fight in a very Jackie Chan-esque style where he's like using a rolling chair and whatever stuff's around him. So it still has like the comedic tone of a Jackie Chan choreographed fight. He was actually, Jackie Chan was offered the role of Simon Phoenix in Demolition Man that went to Wesley Snipes. Oh, wow. That's a weird... But at the time, he was basically the most popular action movie star in Asia and Europe. Yeah, so it's like, okay, well, you know, like even if, no matter how this movie does uh, here, we'll recoup our costs in other markets. Yeah, because basically his films, up until January of 95, I'm looking at this here, films had grossed over almost $500 million U.S. Damn. I can't see Jackie Chan playing, like, he's a badass, but not, like, a badass the way Wesley Snipes is in, like, Demolition Man. It'd be, it'd be weird. Hmm. So I remember reading or hearing that Everything Everywhere All at Once, 
he was originally written as the lead for that one and then had to back out or something like that, so they rewrote it for Michelle Yeoh. Hmm. I mean, that's, the that, around. that's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Michelle Yeoh is in the third police story movie with him. And then she got her a spinoff in Super Cop 2. So she's... I mean... Yeah, she I mean, she made a bunch of a shitload of kung fu movies, obviously. Yeah. It's crazy that of the, the two of them only made one movie together. It's pretty wild, because yeah. they do such a good job in that one. And it just makes me wonder, had he stayed in Everything Everywhere all at once, would it have won the Oscar for Best Picture, and would he have been nominated and possibly won Best Actor? Who knows? But then if he wouldn't maybe, have... Maybe not. I think she was going to be his sidekick or wife or whatever, and the storyline would have yeah. reversed to where we wouldn't have had Short Round making his return to Hollywood and winning an Oscar and making yeah. his legacy that much greater. It would be a lot weirder if like the the main character in that movie was a angry old man instead of an angry old lady. Wouldn't it? <laughs> it just be, feel kind of weird. Where he's just like constantly belittling his wife. That <laughs> would be definitely a, a different movie. <laughs> Jackie Chan's actually teaming up with John Cena to oh. star in a film called Hidden Strike. That I mean, comes out this year. I was gonna say I'm surprised they haven't done anything yet because John Cena speaks like fluent Mandarin, and he even apologized for saying that Taiwan was a place. Because China was very mad at him. <laughs> well, I guess it, he, referred, least... he referred to Taiwan as Taiwan, and then he like had to, made an apology video to China. It's fucking wild. It released to Netflix in, back in July. Oh, hidden so, strike. That's so you said. can go out there and watch it right now. Not me. I canceled Netflix because <laughs> it stinks. It did receive negative reviews from critics, but uh, yeah. it's John Cena and Jackie Chan. I don't think you're going for uh, a masterpiece of. Of uh, hey, film. Hey, if it's 90 minutes and uh, at least moderately fun, it probably pairs well with weed. <laughs> <laughs> it's 102 minutes. Oh, everything's too long these days. Yeah. But I mean, that gives you enough time to be distracted or go to the bathroom and not really miss anything. Hopefully they've got those little spots worked in there. Like, nothing happens here. We'll yeah, just, you, you, know. you can tell when the action scenes are going to happen. I'm not sure how nimble Jackie Chan is these days. I mean... How old is he at this point? He has to be in his seventies, I would think, right? I think so. Uh, fifty-four would be. A born in fifty-four. Yeah. So yeah, so, yeah be seventy. Sixty-nine, dude. Nice. I'm sure he's in good health. Did you know that John Cena is an uncredited extra in Ready to Rumble, the WCW movie? Really. Just found that out because I was oh. trying to remember the name of the movie. Matt just we'll said have to look for him whenever we watch it in <laughs> a couple years. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Hmm, so I wonder if well, this is the prototype or no? He wouldn't have shown up there. He's he probably was... just in the crowd as a fan. Yeah, most likely. Wrestler number three. They didn't even try with the poster for Hidden Strike. No, no, absolutely not. It's just yeah, a, it's totally a Netflix poster. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's make it look like a video game so nobody can tell what the hell it actually is. It's like a, a hair away from being an Asylum Films or whatever poster. Anyway, enough Jackie Chan. We're not in China. We're in Japan. Jackie Chan. That's right. Away from the Kung Fu and into the wrestling. That's right. Absolutely. So all these matches, New Japan World, 
they're separated individually out, so there's nothing in between or anything. So it's just a collection of matches. So, which makes sense because that's how Japanese shows typically go. There's not a whole lot of it's like match, you know, song guy comes out, song guy comes out, match, song plays, guy leaves, next match. So it's not you're not going to get a whole lot of backstage segments and things uh, in these kinds of shows anyway. So the biggest thing you lose in them chopping it up like this is some of the entrances, but a lot of these guys were using music that, that was, they're not going to pay. They're for not going to anyway. pay for at this point in time. You know, so, no one's paying Led Zeppelin money for uh, was it Tenzon that uses that? Togi Makabe. Oh, Makabe. Yeah. So the the version that I listened to was that a different rip from what you guys watched? Yeah. Because mine did have some backstage it stuff. May have. Oh. Okay. It may have been the actual video. Yeah. And then there was somebody with the final countdown as their their theme song. And yeah, so as you were saying that, I'm like, wait a minute. Did I watch the right Yeah, we watched it on the <laughs> thing. I, I saw that you can, it was on YouTube as well, which is probably the same video you yeah. watched. Because mine had like intros before the match where they showed like a build-up to it where it had like graphics and music and stuff which i thought oh my god wow cool they're actually doing something like this instead of just stop start match and interesting yeah i kind of wish i would have watched that <laughs> sounds fun but mine was missing you know one match yeah i don't ever look on youtube for that stuff so i could look if you're saying it's on i YouTube. think it is because I, I i think i looked at it curiosity whenever i was pulling the show up so there's a few options there if you're wanting to watch along with this. That it's out there on the internet to find, for the most part. But it is if you want to pay the money. There's plenty. Of, there's plenty of other good stuff on yeah. Japan World. So we're gonna go straight to our first match: Yuji Nagata, Takashi Izuka, Osami Kido, and Kazu Yamazaki versus Satoshi Kojima, Asamu Nishimuri. Manabu Nakanishi and Junji Harada. Hmm. Little eight-man tag. Uh, that's how these shows start. Absolutely. It's tough when you don't know who everyone is. Yep. It's like, oh, I, I know Izuka, I know Kojima and Nagata. The other guys are a little harder for me to and see, put the name to the face. Did you write them in the order that they were walking to the ring? Because that's how I labeled them. I, wrote, I think I <laughs> wrote them as they were named. Okay. Whenever they did the announcements uh, in yeah. the in well, the hopefully ring. they they were named as they were walking down because that's where I was like, who is this guy? Because that is a benefit. That I, that to I, I attributed to being uh, Izuka. He looked familiar, so I'm hoping that I'd seen him before. You have. Okay. Yeah. We have, I believe, seen all of these people at least one time before. Yeah, we have. It's just people that I'm yeah, not as familiar with. So maybe that intro video would have been helpful for me. Because I'm like... Bleh. And speaking of when we saw them last... Oh, let's do it. Yamazaki was at G1 Climax 96, episode 214. Nagata and Kojima was at Wrestling World 96, episode 181. Izuka, Kido, Nakanishi, and Harada at Battle 7, episode 140. And Nishimuri at the NWA... Smoky Mountain Wrestling World Heavyweight Tournament Championship, episode 135. Is that the show that had Al Snow on it that was like yeah. shot by a fan? Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. the horrible commentary? Yep. Yeah. Okay, just making sure. You don't forget the ones like that, guys. <laughs> yeah, Can- Candido won the belt. Yeah, I think that's right. And that was when we were like, oh, 
Al Snow can wrestle because I was because all familiar knew with his, was head. head. Yeah. yeah. So this match gets going with Nagata and Nakanishi trading strikes. When Nakanishi would nail a vicious clothesline and swings Nagata around in a chokehold. But he then misses a leg drop, allowing Nagata to apply a leg lock, only for Nakanishi to immediately roll to the ropes. Azuka and Kojima tag in with Azuka looking to hit a T-bone suplex, only for Kojima to elbow his way free and deliver a lariat and a somersault senton. But Azuka's right back up to hit a back suplex and a somersault senton of his own. Time for Nishimuri and Yamazaki to get some work in, with Yamazaki nailing several headbutts before trying to roundhouse kick Kojima off the apron, which allows Nishimuri to attempt a drop kick, only for Yamazaki to avoid and apply a leg lock, which Nishimuri rolls to the ropes to break up immediately. And Nabgata comes back in to work the arm of Nishimuri, but he ends up being taken to the wrong corner, allowing Harada to tag in and deliver a back elbow, a vertical suplex, and a senton for a two-count. Harada continues with a lariat in the corner before going to a headlock, which brings Yamazaki in to break it up, allowing Nagata to take Harada down, followed by Kido tagging in to work the neck and arm of Harada. Now Azuka's tagged in, but his entire team jumps in the ring to deliver double kicks to the gut, and double arm breakers with a leg lock for good measure to Harada until the opposing team comes in to break it all up. And Harada is finally able to make it to his corner, tagging in Kojima, who delivers a lariat and a jumping forearm in the corner, before heading up top for an elbow drop that gets a near fall. And Azuka fires back to make it to his corner to bring in Yamazaki, who nails several kicks to Kojima, before attempting a powerbomb, only for Kojima to counter into a back body drop, allowing him to tag in Nishimuri who comes right in with multiple drop kicks to Yamazaki. Nishimuri follows up with a bridging Northern Lights suplex, only for Yamazaki to roll out of it right into a cross arm breaker, which is broken up by Harada leg drop. I think that maybe the word for the day might be Northern Lights suplex, if I remember correctly. We will be seeing a lot There's of these. A few of them. <laughs> I mean, they pay respect to their Hiroshi Hase, who came up with the move. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. Kojima and Kido both tag in, with Kojima delivering chops, only for Kido to fight back with kicks and a neckbreaker for a two-count. Now Nagata returns with a kick combo, followed by Yamazaki joining in for double-team kicks to Kojima, before Izuka nails a Yurinagi, allowing Nagata to lock in another cross-armbreaker, which brings everyone into the ring to brawl, with Harada breaking up the submission. Now Kojima hits a vicious lariat to Nagata before tagging in Nakanishi, who puts Nagata in an Argentine backbreaker, which is a torture rack. Okay, I was like, <laughs> Argentine backbreaker. Like, I wrote down torture rack. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by dropping him onto his knee for a backbreaker. Kojima then comes back in for a double-team lariat on Nagata, followed by Nishimuri flying off the top with a missile dropkick and Harada going for a lariat of his own, only to get caught with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex by Nagata before locking in another cross-arm breaker. And Nakanishi breaks that up, taking Nagata over with a back body drop and allowing Harada to nail a bridging butterfly suplex, which again brings in everybody to brawl. 
Hirata delivers a sit-out powerbomb to Nagata for a near fall, followed by a lariat for the pin and And no win. And this would be Nagata's final match in New Japan for a couple of years as he would head off on excursion to the land of WCW. Oh, that's why they gave him so much ring time. This was his, like, you know... Goodbye match. That's cool. So now I'm trying to remember... Does he have a different name in WCW, or is he still Nagata? No, he's still Nagata. All right. I mean, this is standard, solid, eight-man tag stuff. Everybody does some cool stuff. There's some big moves. Everybody breaks stuff up until everybody holds everybody back and somebody takes a pin. That's how we start wrestling shows in Japan. It's nice to know that Kojima always had a wonderful lariat. Yes. Painful. Sometimes... He looks just as good or better today. Sometimes these eight-man tags can get a little... Much. Much. But I thought they told a pretty good story with this one. And it was concise. Yeah. I did notice one thing where uh, when Izuka tags in, it was he got a pretty big pop. And I was like, I, I bet he's got a tag belt of some kind at the moment. I don't Maybe. know exactly. Who knows? But I was just, I was just like, oh. Just as, yeah. You know, you notice uh, the the different pops guys get when there's eight people there. And yeah. Like, who, how big is, you know, how much do people actually care about each one of these guys? And I like how when it came time for the pin, those who were not pinning held their opponent, opponent in back. the corner. That way they I mean, could a, break up the pin. That's a huge thing in, yeah. in Japanese. It's wrestling. beautiful. Yeah, I mean, they do it... Every to show today. To today, yeah, to this day, it's a there's a formula that is tried and true that works, and it basically certain interactions allow for certain singles matches, to be yeah, to be turned into singles matches and stuff. Yep, that's the formula. So we go to our second match: Super Liger versus Koji Kanemoto. The Gold Rush return. I'm sorry, I have to write down the fun names they have on world for each match oh. <laughs> and this one's called gold rush return so we last saw kanamato at wrestling world 96 episode 181 and did we all figure out who was under the liger mask i, did. I didn't until i looked it up i couldn't tell by watching uh, or i didn't think to try to think who it was by i watching. did not get to watch the match but I saw a short clip that Matt showed me on his phone, and within the first, like, four seconds, I figured out who it was. Yeah, and it totally that makes sense, because this guy's been here before. Mm-hmm. Act like you've been here before. So, Super Liger, basically, they... So, if we look at Tiger Mask, mm-hmm. Tiger Mask's, like, perennial rival is... Black Tiger. Black Tiger. That's basically what they were kind of trying to do here. Yeah. Okay. Creating a heel per, liger, a heel liger for Jushin Thunder Liger to feud with, and they could have put multiple people under the mask like they do with Black Tiger, and it just so happened that they got Jericho, Chris Jericho, to do it in this match, and we'll talk more about it afterwards. But Super Liger starts us off with a back suplex, a brainbuster, and a drop kick to the knee taking the fight to the mat for some legwork shared between the two competitors. And Liger fires up with an enziguri and a scoop slam before heading out to the apron to return with a slingshot splash for a two count. Super Liger continues with a rubber band slam and a spinning heel kick to send Koji out to the apron. He tries to follow up with a springboard dropkick, but he slips on the ropes to fall to the mat. 
So Liger gets up and drop kicks Kanemoto out to the floor. Super Liger then heads up top and delivers a missile drop kick to the outside before getting back in the ring to pose. But the crowd boos him. This is when he puts out both of his middle fingers. I was like, that's not very Liger of you. <laughs> and Liger attempts to bring Koji in the hard way. But Kanemoto reverses, sending Super Liger out to the floor. Following out with a springboard corkscrew moonsault. Koji then goes for a vertical suplex to bring Liger back in. But Super Liger floats over and knocks Kanemoto down. Attempts a springboard moonsault, only for Koji to have moved. Followed by both men going for drop kicks at the same time. Ah, crowd always loves that. They know each other so well. Back to their feet, the two men trade strikes with the fight leading to a top turnbuckle. Where Liger goes for a Frankensteiner, only for Koji to counter it into a powerbomb. Yes. Kanemoto goes on the attack with kicks and a second rope corkscrew moonsault for a near fall. Followed by a top rope moonsault. Makes the cover. Only to pull Super Liger up at two. Don't get cocky. Koji then nails a bridging Tiger suplex for a near fall. But Liger comes back with a lariat for a two count. Before taking Kanemoto to the top turnbuckle for a superplex. Only for Koji to toss Super Liger out to the floor and leap off with a crossbody. Where Liger greets him with a dropkick in midair. Sniped. Super Liger takes Kanemoto to the top once more, hitting a double underhook superplex, making the cover, but now he pulls the shoulders up at two. Don't get cocky. Before hitting a bridging Tiger suplex for the pin and the win. It's one thing I did like, because this is a pretty monstrous crowd of 60,000 people, that when he lifts his head off of the mat, he like makes sure to like motion to the crowd so they know that what he did was on purpose because a lot can be lost in an arena that big. Yeah. Because if you've ever been to a live wrestling show and you got high up seats, that ring is felt a lot smaller a than bit. it looks like on TV. That big move just looks like you put a thumb in somebody's eye. Granted, there's giant screens everywhere, but you know, you want to make sure they knew what he was doing. And Super Liger went over with the Japanese crowd like a fart. In the woods. They were not. And this is the last time Super Liger was ever a thing. So is this the first and last time? First and last time. Damn. One and done. I guess he doesn't quite have the uh, the juice under the mask like uh, Eddie did. Man. <laughs> or maybe they just don't need two Ligers. Wonder. Temper tantrum just grew. Definitely grew don't there. need two Ligers. No. no. I mean, we had that one. That one match from the the Jacob. A couple years ago, I can't remember who it was with Liger in the final, but they wore like similar colors and. Oh yeah. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but like that's the only other Liger that I could picture outside of like Kinshin Liger. And Liger's had some different variations of like costumes throughout the years, yeah. but it's still the same guy. Like Kinshin Liger is basically, what if you got pissed off and turned into a heel? Oh, so that's his. That's just still, still the same. It's basically guy. Demon, it's Demon it's, Liger. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. It's Muda and Mudo. Yeah, yeah. He brought it back recently, the year before he retired, and uh, you know, almost stabbed Minoru Suzuki in the head with like a screwdriver. <laughs> it's pretty great, pretty uh, pretty fun stuff at the time. Very non-Liger. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, he takes his mask off, and his face is all covered in like black. He looks scary. It's cool. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I could do Liger without. Him. <laughs> but I guess he's, if he's, got he's paint evil. On. Yeah. He just looks like a low-budget Halloween makeup guy. Where it's like, we're yeah. gonna make this guy scary, so we're gonna like just cover his face in black paint. And it works. Yeah, here's William Shatner mask just covered in dull paint, and mm-hmm. now it's the scariest image for, you know, almost 50 years. So we go to our third match. Jinsei Shinzaki with the Great Suzuki versus Mikiyoshi Ohara with Akitoshi Saito. And the last time we saw Shinzaki was at Monday Night Raw on January 22nd, 1996. Under the name... Hakushi. Yeah. Yep. Episode 185. Even without the kanji painted all over his body? You know what this guy You know who this guy is as soon as he shows up. Oh, I was, yeah. I was excited. And the last time we saw Mikoyoshi was at Battle 7, episode 140. Yeah, when uh, the match began... I shouldn't even say when the match began. When uh, the entrance began, I saw him walk out, and I just looked... You know, didn't have a clear view of who it was, but looked at the TV and thought to myself... Oh, I miss Hakushi. And then I get my phone, and I'm watching, and I look up and realize, holy shit. And then I text my nephew and said, watching a 1997 Japanese show for the podcast, and uh, this guy shows up dressed in all white. All I can think is how much I miss Hakushi, and then it turns out that he's him. Holy shit, I'm actually sitting on the edge of my seat here in 2023, for a- <laughs> ready to watch a Hakushi match that I've never seen before outside of the WWF. And uh, it's also fun because this is like a battle of the samurai as far as gimmicks go. Like, Yoshi's got some big kanji on his chest. It's not the tiny stuff. There's probably some Shinto stuff going on. He's got a robe. He's got the staff. There's uh, hats. Everybody looks cool. And it's like, oh, well, I assume that there's some kind of old world battle between the gimmicks here. My, I'm just making this up, but it's what it felt like. <laughs> See, my thought was they're like two versions of the same person, one good, one evil, because one yeah. walked out with bright lights and white clothing. The other one you know, was more darker and sinister and you know had a black... I mean, I think that's what O'Hara was going for, was like a was like the evil version of, yeah. of Shinzaki, basically. And uh, this match was subtitled Special Game, Shirobeyame Re-Pilgrimage. <laughs> So, whatever you want to take from that. Okay. <laughs> so, Ohara attacks as the bell rings, whipping Jensei from corner to corner before delivering a praying powerbomb and an elbow drop. This guy loves to pray. Mishiyoshi with headbutts and chops, but he misses a clothesline when Shinsaki cartwheels away to avoid, nailing a thrust kick to take Ohara down. Jensei with chops and a drop kick for a two count, charges in, only for Michiyoshi to back body drop him over to the floor, where O'Hara's Haisa Ishigun teammates get some kicks in. I mean, I'm already pumped because it's a big, strong boy match. Mm-hmm. Nothing I love more than a big, strong boy match. Saito peels back the mat from the concrete, allowing them to drop Shinzaki with a spike pile driver onto the floor. Oh, and he prays before he jumps off that apron. <laughs> before running him into a ring post Posted. and a guardrail. Back in the ring, Michiyoshi with a vertical suplex and a back body drop for a near fall. Works the neck with chokes and knees before being thrown back to the floor. What a dirty boy. Should I start saying railed? 
Just a thought. Garden. <laughs> Ishigun looks to get involved again, but Jinzei fights back, sending Saito into the guardrail before regrouping for a moment on the floor. Shinzaki then looks to return to the ring, only for Ohara to attempt to stop him, but Jinsei grabs him for a rope walk chop and scoop slam before hitting a second rope pump splash for a two count. Shinzaki then locks on a nerve hole. The nerve of this man. Wearing down Michigoshi momentarily, followed by a top rope chop, only for Ohara to catch him to counter it into a choke slam for a near fall. Michiyoshi's back on the attack with a tackle, goes for another praying powerbomb, only for Jinsei to reverse it into a hurakarana for a two count. Ohara goes for another choke slam, with Shizaki fighting his way free, only for Michiyoshi to mule kick down low to regain control. Ohara finally gets that choke slam for a near fall. He then calls his teammates into the ring, only for it to backfire as Saito nails a spinning heel kick to Michiyoshi allowing Jinsei to come off the top with a flying shoulder block and a diving headbutt before delivering a praying powerbomb of his own for the pin and the win. Yay. I mean, this is fun stuff and uh, perfectly plotted, like, heel-face match. Yeah, the callbacks are timed outright and intelligent. This is a... Absolutely my shit and done to like a T of like this is how wrestling supposed to work kind of thing where it's like these are these are the like traditional rules of the thing go out there and have the best match you can inside of it and I think they pulled it off pretty well Mm -hmm. chef's kiss over here so we go to our fourth match Yoshihiri Tajiri versus Sinjiro Otani (sighs) in a New Japan versus Big Japan match hey that's what it said as the the, the, the title. They didn't get too fancy with this one. So the last time we saw Shinjiro was at the J-Crown Tournament, episode 213. And yes, this is the Tajiri that we know from ECW and WWF. A very young version. Yeah, it's... Uh, Otani is uh, noticeably taller than Tajiri, but if it looks, Tajiri is like a little bit more bulky, so... You always forget. You no, don't really always notice how tall some Japanese wrestlers are. And it's like, oh, Tani's a little taller than I thought. Yeah. And he's one of my favorite guys. So uh, I was like, maybe Tajiri's just uh And see, the know. first time I saw Tani, I want to say I thought he was, you know, maybe 5'7", you 5'8". Know, because <laughs> yeah. he just, I don't remember who he was in the ring with, but he just looked short and stout. Or not really stout, but... Yeah, he was probably across from, like, Scott Steiner. So <laughs> he just just doesn't look as large. So Yoshihiri offers a handshake, but when Otani reaches out, Tajiri fakes him out and nails a spinning heel kick to start. Yoshihiri with multiple kicks and a rolling Jujikatami hold before hitting a bridging German for a two count. The two then fight over a waist lock, only for Tajiri to escape and deliver a hurricanrana for an airfall which has Sajiro all like, what is happening? <laughs> I mean, you know. The young guy's got to play dirty tricks if he wants to beat the uh, more established bet. Otani responds with a drop kick to the knee, allowing him to work the leg with a cross-knee scissors hold that forces Yoshihiri to reach the ropes, only for Shinjiro to refuse to let go. Otani continues with boot scrapes and a spinning heel kick, 
for the two start slapping each other silly, with them both falling down at the same time. Now back to their feet, Shinjiro hits a body slam before heading out to the apron for a springboard dropkick, only for Tajiri to avoid and nail a bridging dragon suplex for a two count. And uh, there's a big old pop, and this looks great, and the crowd is alive for this one. Atani rolls out to the floor to regroup, but Yoshihiri is hot on his tracks, leaping out with an ACI moonsault, where the young lions have to help catch him so that he doesn't fall into the front row. He's a little, uh, a little scurry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shinjiro makes it back to the apron, where Tajiri tries to knock him back out to the floor with a high kick, only for Atani to catch him with a heel kick. Shinjiro then returns inside with a springboard dropkick and attempts a dragon suplex, but Yoshihiri counters it into a sunset flip before transitioning into a rolling cradle for a near fall. You can't go back to the well, man. Tajiri sets Otani on the top rope to deliver a super rana for a two count before going for another rana, only for Shinjiro to counter it into a powerbomb. Atani then nails a sit-out powerbomb and a springboard spinning heel kick. For the pin! And the win! So this puts New Japan up. One to nothing. Oh, this match fucking rocked. Yeah, it's so great. I mean, I'm always here for Otani matches, and it's nice to see him with a, a new opponent that has something to prove. And they really, they really did it, folks. Young little Tajiri. So we go to our fifth match. Kendo Nagasaki versus Tatsutoshi Goto with Akitoshi Saito in a New Japan versus Big Japan match. Uh, which I personally subtitled uh, Battle of the Big Bald Men. Yeah. One's got a more prominent mustache. <laughs> so last time we saw Tatsutoshi was at Battle 7, episode 140. And we get a feeling out process with some mat work to start, shared between the two, before going into a test of strength. Woo! Which Goto uses a cheap shot to gain control momentarily. But Nagasaki comes right back with right hands of his own. And the two continue to trade strikes when Kendo takes Tatsutoshi down with a Kimura lock, which he escapes and goes for close fists. But the ref stops him, allowing Nagasaki to regain control on the mat. Goto is thrown out to the floor where Kendo runs him into the guardrail and delivers several elbows before going back inside. Where Tatsutoshi hits a lariat before taking Nagasaki out to the ramp to suplexi, followed by a running lariat on the ramp as well. I mean, you know, if you're going to have that catwalk, you better use it. One that runs all the way from like the center field fence of a baseball field to the pitcher's mound. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You got to run the whole thing, too. Absolutely. I mean, it happens every, every year yes. in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> back in the ring, Goto goes for a back suplex. But Kendo fights his way free with back elbows before hitting a thrust kick and a pile driver for a two count. Nagasaki throws a haymaker only for Tatsutoshi to duck and go for the back suplex again. But Kendo counters into another arm lock, which Goto escapes by making the ropes. And they head out to the floor where Nagasaki tosses Tatsutoshi into a guardrail, before grabbing a chair to smash across the back of Goto and Saito multiple times. 
Tatsutoshi is rolled back in, with Kendo continuing the attack with the chair after he knocks the ref down. Followed by a side slam and a pile driver onto the chair for the pin and, and the win. win. So Big Japan ties it up at one. And well, there's one of these uh, chair shots that looks like he's wielding it like an axe, like he just took the the, the back top of the chair and just like chopped at him. I was like, Jesus! <laughs> I rewound a couple times to see like like try to see how he actually connected with him, and that's the best I could figure out. It's like, you're going to give a guy uh they're all getting concussions either way, but kill a guy if you punch him in the temple or whatever. You know what they say? So we go to our sixth match. Shoji Nakamaki versus Masahiro Chono in a New Japan versus Big Japan match with Kotetsu Yamamoto as a special referee. And the last time we saw Chono was at the G1 Climax 96, episode 214. And Kotetsu Yamamoto is a New Japan Hall of Famer. Best known for being a trainer in the dojo for such names as Keiji Muto, Jushin Thunder Liger, Minoru Suzuki, Shinsuke Nakamura, (laughs) too many letters, (laughs) and Masahiro Chono. Considered, along with Anoki and Carl Gotch, the responsible for the fundamentals of what is considered strong style. So a goddamned legend is what we're saying. He was in the initial class of like five people that were inducted in the Hall of Fame, along with Gotch and Anoki and a couple other guys. We would so, refer to as a real one. Yes. And as far as I remember, this is the first time we've seen him, so I was like... Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Gotta give his credentials. Hell yeah. Gotta give the respect, right? With credentials like that, yeah. So, did the bell ring? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember, honestly. Because I mean, Nakamaki uh, is literally just holding a barbed wire board out on the ramp... When Mashahiro comes out and just slaps him. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, all right, Slap. well, I'm not going to wait around for he's this guy with face. 11. Yeah, and, and the crowd is immediately hot. I mean, Jonah's big shit, and there's, you know, a barbed wire board in the Tokyo Dome. This isn't standard fare. The two men brawl up the ramp before Chono throws Shoji off, off of it, where they continue to brawl. They get back on the ramp. And Masahiro drags Nakamaki into the ring, where the bell finally rings. <laughs> so I guess, I guess it hadn't rung yet. Followed by a body slam and heading up top. Chono then challenges Shoji, Shoji to join him on the turnbuckle. And he no-sells a superplex and a shoulder block before delivering a Yakuza kick for the pin and, and the, the win. win. Yeah, Chono, the fourth road warrior. Or... Yeah, I guess, yeah, because of Power Warrior. Chono Warrior. Chono Warrior. I mean, Masa Warrior. Yeah, no, I kind of popped for... Ah. I mean, the crowd was hot as hell, but... He, he, I, hero Warrior. A hero Warrior, there you mm. go. And I popped for the no-sell, even though I normally don't love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, New Japan's up 2-1 now in this challenge series. I have a question that you might not have the answer to, but mm-hmm. who is uh, Soji Nakamaki, and why was he made to be a punk? 
he's a pretty much a deathmatch guy yeah. in Big Japan. So that totally makes sense why Chono came out there and kicked his ass not doing deathmatch stuff because <laughs> he views it as an inferior. Hell yeah, love it. Well, <laughs> that's my story. Also, Chono's <laughs> like, dude, I have a match later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I realized that later. I was like, how's Chono doing like a fucking three minute match and he's like one of the biggest stars in the company right now and uh i found my answer later as uh, he will return to the ring so basically he's so big that he got to bury a guy and then come out and have a real match later (laughs) so post-match masahiro locks on the stf which he learned from eric watts exactly when nakamaki's (laughs) teammates would come in only for hero saito to make the save which is Chono's teammate, followed by several sentons onto Shoji. Chono grabs the barbed wire board and brings it into the ring and sets it against the ropes when Nakamaki would start fighting back, finally nailing a clothesline to take down Masahiro. Shoji goes to whip Chono into the board. But you guessed it, folks. But Masahiro reverses it to send Nakamaki into the barbed wire followed by a superplex onto it as well. Ouch. And Chono seems done with him. Like, yeah. Masahiro's like leaving the ring, but Nakamaki's just crazy. So he somersaults Sintons himself and a back and just takes a back bump yeah. onto the barbed wire. I don't know if anybody saw this, but similar, similar to Kota Ibushi just uh, bumping on thumbtacks after a match for no reason. <laughs> But he's kind of an insane man. So I guess that's true of uh, this Nakamaki as well. I mean, if you're, if you're basically going to be a deathmatch guy and that's what you're known for, you got you to sc- yeah. screw loose somewhere. Yeah, he's a guy, I may have got my ass kicked, but I'm still going to get my shit in on myself. <laughs> so we go to our seventh match. The Great Kajuki versus Masa Saito in a New Japan versus Big Japan match with... Kotetsu Yamamoto as a special referee. I have a quick question. So, mm-hmm. I know who Masa Saito is, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, whenever I watch this match on the world, it said versus uh, Great Fawn, and I was like, who the fuck is Great Fawn? And I looked it up, because this guy's got, like, you know, a buzz cut that's, like, dyed red. He looks, like, a little bit older, like, average build, but, like, Japanese guy, and he's wearing, like, a vest of grenades. He's the president of big japan okay and he literally is 80 something years old this year yeah and he's still wrestling that's crazy damn i don't know that what we he does in this match is even wrestling <laughs> like he, he's there's yano vibes here guys yes just he, heads up it's very much a comedy type match basically yeah it's a it's the more like standard japanese comedy match not a like blow up doll or we wear like Gundam costumes comedy match it's a the comedy match that happens on a traditional wrestling show not the comedy match that happens in like a DDT yeah so the last time we saw Masa was at Starcade 95 episode 177 and as you mentioned Kojika's he's wearing a tuxedo with grenades on a vest very funny but Thankfully, the ref made him remove the vest. Uh-huh. He makes a big to-do about it, though. Well, yeah, because he wants to keep, like, pulling a pin on a grenade the entire match. Like, 
what are we doing? Bro? Yeah, like you're not going to get hurt. So Saito takes the fight to the Great Kajuki with kicks, chokes, and overhead chops that send Kajuki outside to regroup. Back in, Masa no-sells every attempt of offense that Kajiki gives, responding with more overhead chops and kicks, causing Kajiki to bell out once more. The great Kajiki returns, only to be taken down with kicks from Saito once more, so one of Kajiki's cronies jumps on the apron, only for Masa to drag him in, which brings in more flunkies, with Saito taking care of all of them with clotheslines and body slams. Someone's got a bump. The distraction allows the great Kajuki to wrap a chain around his fist and use it several times, including choking Masa, even as the ref kicks and slaps him to force Kajiki to stop. Saito then nails more overhead chops, a body slam, before locking on an ankle hold for the submission and And the the win. So New Japan wins the challenge series. Uh-oh. Three to one. Yeah, and of course the BJW guys come back in just to get beaten down by Masa Saito once more. Absolutely. I did like that the ref finally got pissed enough to just open hand slap him across the face. <laughs> as far as like comedy matches go, we don't see a lot of them, and I thought this one was fine. So we go to our eighth match. The final countdown, number six. Willie Williams versus Antonio Inoki. So the reason it's called the final countdown six is uh, Anoki is basically reliving all of his greatest matches as he's doing a retirement tour, which is taking forever because I think final countdown fifth was at Wrestling World 96, which was the last time we saw him, episode 181. This is a match, him and Willie Williams actually had a MMA Styles match back in like 1980. One, I think that's where I read it. It was 81, 82, 83, 84. It was early 80s. Yeah. It was one of his greatest matches. But literally, that's the last time Willie Williams was in a wrestling match. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Willie Williams, it's like you can tell, it's like this guy's not a wrestler. He's like an ex-kickboxer he's, or something. He's basically just a karate guy. Yeah, I mean, he looks big and scary. He also, you know, has probably been in, was better, in better shape in 81, but he could probably still kick... Just about anybody's ass. He's, see, they showed a little clip big. of it on the one that I watched. Oh, really? Yeah, they had Willie with his... At least I'm assuming that's when the fight was was from. Was from their one from the 80s. But, you know, he had boxing gloves or something like that on. So it was either from their previous fight or it was something that was building up to this show where they had a little face-to-face on something. Yeah. yeah, I was totally confused. I even had to pull up my phone. Like, is there seriously an Anoki match on you? Because I wasn't expecting that. They're just going to show up at random times. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't even know when his last one is. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if they if they take up as much time on a show as this one does, then I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's like, oh, well, you, the, everybody gets to see the guy and uh, cheer for the guy and... Uh, admire the chin. Admire the chin. Honestly, <laughs> at this point, that's all we have to I mean, admire. He's dead at this point, and sometimes I wonder if they wouldn't just roll his, uh, carcass, co- his carcass in his casket yeah. out to the ring. Yeah, just, just to... in a glass one full of flowers. Like there's like a tree root growing. <laughs> All right. Sprouted from uh-huh. the chin. That, that would be a, good, be a good gimmick. Somebody that had a, a fake, uh, a, like a metal mold of Inoki's chin that he put on. and then did like Inoki. And then did like a headbutt. <laughs> like an Izuka style thing. Terminoki. <laughs> 
So Williams goes right after Inoki, taking him to a corner before trying for a roundhouse kick that Antonio ducks. Inoki then catches a kick and takes Willie down to the map where they fight for position until Williams makes the ropes to force a break. Willie throws some more kicks, followed by taking Antonio down with a suplex-type move, only for Inoki to recover to get back on top, even as Williams is trying to choke him. Now back to their feet, Antonio avoids multiple kick attempts before catching one and countering it into a ground cobra twist for the submission and, and the win. win. It's not good or fun, but Antonio Inoki was in the ring. Yep. A chin worthy of any stage. So do we go to our ninth match? Let's do it. Jushin Thunder Liger versus Ultimo Dragon for the J Crown Championship. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, on paper, this is this. We've been watching this uh, build for a year, so this is the blowout. This is the the big match. So what I mean by the sorta okay. is that we know that Ultimo won the WCW Cruiserweight Championship the last time we saw him mm-hmm. at Starcade, but WCW did not let him put that belt on the line in this match. Yeah, because I have it as the Junior Heavyweight Eight Crown Championship. So yes, only eight belts were on the line. Not the not WCW. Nine. Lame. So the two men shake hands followed by an athletic sequence that sees each man miss kicks before Dragon attempts a La Magistral pin for a two-call. Callback! Nicely done. Bring it. These guys are smart. They're smart and good. They're playing, they're flying. So they start trading strikes when Liger catches Ultimo with a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker, followed by a Romero special momentarily, before powerbombing Dragon and locking in a bow and arrow hold. Transitioning into a single leg crab, forcing Ultimo to reach the ropes. Jushin works the back with a camel clutch and a butterfly hold, only for Dragon to counter it into a leg lock to ground Liger. Jushin tries to counter back into a cross arm breaker, but Ultimo flips over to transition into an Indian death lock. Now back to their feet, Dragon telegraphs a back body drop, so Liger goes for a sunset flip for a near fall followed by Ultimo retaliating with a small package for a two-count. And Ultimo goes back to work on the leg when Jushin fires back with chops and a kapoo kick, when Dragon reverses a whip to deliver a monkey flip and a drop kick that sends Liger into a corner. Ultimo charges in, only for Jushin to set him up on the top turnbuckle and attempt to slap Dragon. But he's blocked by Ultimo kicking at him and leaping off with a head scissors. I love this spot. He, like... Gets him up there. When guys go to meet a guy on the top rope, they only got to get a shot in to sell that that guy's not just going to sit there and wait for you. This guy actually just lifts his foot because he's up, <laughs> he's above higher than him, so he just slaps the shit out of his foot where it's like, I imagine that if you chops somebody and uh, instead caught a boot on your hand, that would uh, you'd, you'd have to sell that. That yeah. probably hurt pretty bad. Dragon continues with a springboard moonsault and a handspring back elbow, only to be caught with a release German by Liger for an earfall. Jushin then goes for a drop kick that Ultimo avoids, so Liger responds with another kapoo kick to send Dragon out to the floor. Jushin then climbs up top to fly off with a plancha atop Ultimo, 
before coming back inside where Liger nails a fisherman's buster for a two count. And Jushin goes for another suplex, but Dragon counters it into a law magistral for a near fall, followed by another athletic sequence with the two leapfrogging to avoid moves before they both hit clotheslines for a double KO. Milk the crowd, milk that crowd. Back to their feet, Liger ducks a clothesline and nails a shotai, making the cover for a two count, before taking Ultimo to the top for a super Frankensteiner, only for Dragon to hold onto the ropes, causing Jushin to crash down to the mat. Ultimo would then leap off with a Rana, followed by another that would take them both over the ropes and to the floor, only for Dragon to roll back in so he could fly back out with a Tope Suicida. Ultimo then climbs to the top so he can fly off again with a somersault senton onto Liger before they both roll in where Dragon hits a fallaway slam and a top rope moonsault. Ultimo nails a tiger suplex for a near fall, goes for a tombstone, only for Jushin to reverse it into a pancake slam and head up top. But Dragon meets him there to fight atop the turnbuckle before delivering a super Frankensteiner for the pin and no Liger kicks out Ultimo hits a sit out powerbomb and a scoop slam followed by a springboard moonsault that Jushin avoids in time rolling up Dragon with a Law Magistral yes for the pin and no Ultimo kicks out Liger charges into a knee in the gut allowing Dragon to go for another powerbomb but Jushin counters it into a Hurakarana before nailing a Steiner screwdriver for the pin and the win. And no! Times eight. Hmm. I mean... Steiner screwdriver, yes. Yeah. I have the... Uh, I mean, you're doing a Frankenstein, you may as well finish it up with a Steiner screwdriver. Right. Yeah, throw in a Steiner line if you're feeling froggy or, you know, bulldoggy. You know what was really nice about this? We love the junior um, matches and the junior tournaments, but here, pace is wonderful. Everybody takes time to like register and sell moves, so it doesn't feel like a spot fest. And a lot of some of those matches, it's like, all right, now I put you on the top buckle, and then I put you on the top buckle, and this is plotted out in a more uh, believable way because there's time and uh, because these guys have a rivalry and are like on equal footing they're yeah and they get to do all the callbacks and yeah it's just this is what we're here for most of the time right most of the time uh, most of the time Lovely. it's just yeah it's just good stuff is this a yep I mean come on I mean, they made it. They made it last year, and those were the matches leading up to this one. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that they did a. I wouldn't say that they like. This, this is the uh, the main event of what they've been working on all yeah. all of last year. Yeah. This is the reason that Wrestle Kingdom exists. They hooked me with their whole two minutes last year, and I finally got what I wanted, which is more. Yep. And yeah, just everybody, yeah, both guys just meeting each other, a meeting of the minds. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The Boo on WCW for, you know, not 
not participating, but I guess you know they, my, yeah. they must have known the plan, so they didn't want to lose their gold. My assumption is that they can get more out of Dragon because he's been more prominently shown in WCW recently, yeah. as opposed to Liger, who's gonna stay. He's gonna stay home. Maybe he doesn't want to work in uh, America, or probably don't want to have to go do weekly TV. Yeah, yeah, and. He also lives in Mexico, so it's a little bit shorter of a trip for him. Yeah, and he's probably going to get paid more at WCW than he is in Mexico. So everything makes uh, sense, and uh, we got a wonderful match out of him. The WCW fans would have never appreciated. Would have been so mad if this happened on a WCW show. Yeah. If they had the same exact match there, you would have seen people fucking sitting on their hands and getting hard to I was like, yeah. yeah, they would just be sitting on their hands. Like, yeah. What are we watching? These fucking monsters. I mean, it's a, it's a different style of wrestling, but it's still wrestling. I never understand that. So we got our 10th match Kingo Kimura and Tatsumi Fujinami versus Shoten of Masahiro Chono and Hiroshi Tenzan with Hiro Saito for the IWGP Tag Team Championships. So the story behind this match was that Kimura and Fujinami were the first ever holders of the tag team belts Mm. and wanted one last chance at the title that made them famous before retirement. Yeah, as both men are older, Fujinami is uh, looking it. Chono's... Big, a big mean boy, and I assume Tenzon is—he's Tenzon. Yeah. He's—he's he's got a mullet and wears it well. So the last time we saw Hiroshi was at Wrestling World '96, episode 181. Kingo and Tatsumi at Battle Seven, episode 140. In Chono, 20 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Shoten attacks before the bell, cleaning house until it settles into Kimura being double-teamed by the champs. Kingo is finally able to make it to his corner to make a tag, with Fujinami beating down Tenzan, until he makes a tag, which brings Masahiro in to work the legs of Tatsumi. Hiroyoshi continues the punishment on Fujinami with a single-leg crab and headbutts, when Tatsumi retaliates with some turnbuckle smashes, leading to Kimura returning with knees and stomps to the gut. Challengers team up for a body slam and multiple top rope knee drop combos on Tenzan before controlling the match by isolating him with holds. Fujinami attempts a suplex, only for Hiroyoshi to reverse it into one of his own, allowing him to make it to his corner to tag in Chono, who ends up kicking Tatsumi backwards into his corner for Kingo to return. Now Masahiro works the leg of Kimura, before bringing Hiroyoshi back in to continue the attack with a Samoan drop for a two-count. Chono returns with a neckbreaker for a near-fall, before the champs hit a double-team shoulder block, followed by Tenzan with some Mongolian chops. Do the Mongolian chops ever look good? They look better here than they do in a lot of places. <laughs> You're just opening yourself up for a headbutt. Or a knee to the nuts or gut. <laughs> so many things could go wrong. Here Yoshi holds Kingo for Masahiro to leap in off the second rope with a shoulder block. That completely misses, but Kimura sells it anyway. I know, that was tough. I was like, damn, that sucks to do that in front of 60,000 people. The champs keep it up with an atomic drop lariat combo, followed by Chono locking in the STF. 
only for Fujinami to break it up, so they take the fight to him with a whip-aided clothesline. Before Tenzan tosses Tatsumi towards a Masahiro Yakuza kick, but Fujinami catches him and nails a dragon screw leg whip. <sighs> the crowd truly goes wild for this, uh, you know. Let it, let it build, baby. Tatsumi does the same to Hiroyoshi before holding Chono so that a recovered Kingo can land an Inazumi leg lariat, but Masahiro avoids, causing Fujinami to take the blow. Now Chono telegraphs a back body drop, allowing Kimura to kick him away and hit, hit the leg lariat, followed by a power bomb for the pin, and no, <coughs> Tenzon breaks it up. I mean, how bad of a partner would he be if he couldn't? Shoten looks to double-team Kingo, only for Tatsumi to roll back to attack Hiroyoshi from behind, allowing Kimura to meet Masahiro on the top turnbuckle to nail a superplex. Kingo then tags in Fujinami, who tosses Tenzon from the ring, before applying a sleeper to Chono, only for Hiroyoshi to hit a spinning heel kick to break it up. Kimura tosses Tenzon out of the ring once again, allowing the challengers to go for a double team. But Masahiro hands out some low blows and a Yakuza kick to Tatsumi for a near fall. Dirty rotten scoundrels. Chono charges at Fujinami, only to be caught in a dragon sleeper, taking him down to the mat for a cover. When Hiroyoshi flies in with a headbutt to break it up, but Tatsumi moves in time, causing Masahiro to take the hit. I mean, come on. This is what tag team wrestling's about. Kingo again tosses Tenzon from the ring before delivering an Inazumi leg lariat to Chono, followed by a back suplex and a dragon sleeper from Fujinami. For the submission and, and the, the win. win. And move. I was not expecting that. I know you got to give you got to give Fujinami a you know one last run. One last run. They're not gonna give him big boy belt, but they can at least uh, have him create a create a new star before he leaves him in Tenzon and look good and smart doing it. The heels like I love. There's an they. The heels jumpstart the match, and Chono immediately goes for a cover, and the ref's like, just looks at him, it's like, no, I'm not, like, you just cheated. I'm not going to count the pin. And I think that happens, like, twice early on, and I'm like, that's, yeah, a nice moment, and just pointing out how dirty these guys are. I mean, two nut shots. Don't we get one nut, sh- nut shot? He did a double mule kick back-to-back. They also get a trophy. So I assume they may have won the tag tournament to get here. Or they just Japan, Japan, Yeah, just there's like, just trophies. They just like to give away trophies. Yeah. Well, I you hope get I, a trophy. Yeah. You get a trophy. I wonder if anybody has ever actually brought their trophy out uh, quite like Owen Hart and his precious Slammy. Oh, yeah. Two-time Slammy award winner. So we go to our 11th match. Power Warrior versus Great Muda. Battle. Double dealer. Is that what it was? <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> I wrote it down verbatim. Battle of double dealer. Because oh, yeah. both of them have double personalities. Ah, yeah, okay. that's the idea. It's like Power Warrior, and then he's uh, Kinsuke Sasaki, and then Great Muda, and Keiji Muda. Muda. Yeah. And here they're both working with their gimmick. And I'm like, Pff. You know what? Both their gimmicks are working for me. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's awesome. <laughs> we'll have to talk about what Power Warrior is wearing. 
So the last time we saw Great Muda was at the G1 Climax 96, episode 214. And now's the time to talk about that pre-gear that Power Warrior is wearing. Yeah, he's like, wearing, it's like, so my initial thought at seeing that was... Iron Man? This is what just screams to me from the TV as I'm watching it. This is what Shockmaster should have been. Should have looked like? Yeah. Because it's, you know, a, it's it, a great yeah, yeah, it this that's all I could think while watching that's it was a, yeah, really this would be the perfect Shockmaster. You know, even if it was somebody else wearing it, doesn't matter. It's it just like matter. that. Yeah. That vibe is there. Yeah, it's it's more than a, a Halloween painted stormtrooper helmet and yeah, it kind of looks like the original cape. Iron Man faceplate if you ever have read comic books. Yeah. But that's kind of the vibe that I got from it uh, and Muda. Always with the crazy costumes. Mm-hmm. He's wearing like a red sparkle robe, but he has the a snake on one shoulder, a human skull on the other shoulder, and then his mask is a hybrid snake-human skull. <laughs> it's fucking wild. And all this shit's like gold or copper. Very shiny. So but he's like, yeah. his paint was then was like snakeskin? I, yeah, I guess that because I never really thought about point, what it was. I was trying to figure out what it was, and it just looked like paint had exploded on his face. Maybe who knows? Maybe he just got tired of doing it well. <laughs> but his face—it was always kind of just like red and black. It never was as intricate as like Sting makeup or anything. But man, if you're gonna have a big, big showy entrances, and like this is the place for these guys to go all out. Yes, and, and they did. Yeah. And we all, everybody knows that they're great wrestlers. There's a reason this is match number 11. <laughs> and a spectacle. So needless to say, I was pretty stoked. So we get a feeling out process to start. Until Muda starts laying in some kicks. Only for Warrior to respond with a lariat and a press slam to send KG rolling out to regroup. Back in, Sazaki goes back to work with stomps and chops. Only for Muda to duck a clothesline and hit a spinning back kick. Followed by a vertical suplex which Warrior kicks out hard enough to send KG rolling out to the floor to regroup again. One thing I must point out, as soon as the bell rings, they stare at each other, Muda puts his fingers to his throat, red mist. Just straight in the air, obviously, but you know, you gotta have that spectacle off the top. Suzaki catches Muda in a power slam, so KG again rolls out to slow the momentum, until he re-enters the ring where KG uses a cheap shot to toss Warrior out to the floor and over the guardrail into the media area. And Muda nails a pile driver of Suzaki atop a table, before just dumping a bunch of chairs and other tables on top of him. But Warrior powers his way free to stalk after KG, sending him into a ring post. Posted. Followed by Pancake slamming him atop a table. Ouch. Now back in the ring, Suzaki misses a dropkick allowing Muda to deliver a snap elbow before tossing Warrior out onto the ramp, where KG hits a bulldog and a running lariat. I mean, how could he not? Muda seems to be the one that does it the most out of everybody. <laughs> yeah. Trademark. Suzaki makes it back in, so Muda whips him to a corner, following in with a handspring back elbow, only for Warrior to catch him but KG elbows his way free and nails a back kick before climbing up top where Suzaki meets him. 
Muda is tossed off the turnbuckle down to the floor, where KG grabs several chairs to toss into the ring. Only for Warrior to tire of the stalling, so he goes out after Muda, but ends up being whipped into a guardrail. And they both get back in the ring, with KG using a chair over the head of Suzaki, who no-sells and hits a clothesline, before grabbing the chair to use it himself. Muda goes to spit the mist, but Warrior's ready for it, blocking it with the chair. And then breaks the chair over the head of KG. These are all unprotected headshots, by the Mm -hmm. way, just for a visual. Who rolls out once more, sneaking under the ring, only to come back into it from behind him, from the top, only for Warrior to see him in time for a shot to the gut on Muda's way down. Suzaki delivers a power slam and a lariat for two counts, then nails a power bomb and makes the cover, only for KG to spit green mist into Warrior's eyes. So we got red. I think we missed there was a green uh, mist in between there. Red and then green. And like the only reason he crawled into that ring, guys, is because the man ran out of mist. <laughs> He's got to recharge. <laughs> Muda takes advantage of the springboard, double axe handle, and a top rope moonsault for a near fall. Then goes out to the floor to bring a table back into the ring. And KG sets it up in a corner, whips Suzaki into it, followed by a handspring back elbow. Muda then lays the table on the mat before taking Warrior up to a turnbuckle for a super Frankensteiner onto the table. And onto the top of his fucking head. (laughs) Keiji continues with a backbreaker, lays Sazaki on top of the table before heading up top for a moonsault. But Warrior moves in time, allowing him to nail a lariat and a Northern Lights bomb onto the table for the pin! And the win. Fun. I know. I was excited for a Power Warrior win. Really, just with we all know now today that Muda's kind of almost the whole Kogan of that doesn't work for me, brother. It points in his career, but here he took the loss to Power Warrior. I did like the way he snapped though with the uh, the piling of the tables and chairs and whatnot on top of a Warrior. Yeah, I just that's not a side I can remember seeing from Muda before where he just looked like he fully lost control and was like, fuck you, I'm going to bury your ass. And I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of sense to be made here. Uh, Muda's working erratically, and he's uh, smaller than Kensuke Sasaki. So is he technically considered the heel in this match? or Okay. Yeah, Muda was definitely the heel in the match. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, yeah. And also the... Wonderful use of the mist. They like tease the, They do the mist, tease the mist. He misses the mist, gets the mist in a pin that he would have probably lost on, and then uh, got too big for his britches. Usually, if it's Great Muta, he's heel. Okay. When it's KG Muta, he's face. Okay. It's just kind of different because when we saw him in he was Muta in yeah, WCW, WCW, it's like yeah, he was probably technically the heel, but he was so cool and nobody had seen that. For him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But like. They, the crowd was always behind him. There were signs. Everybody was like, immediately, this guy's cool. So the heel gimmick didn't really like work because the guy was awesome and yeah. he worked in a way that people hadn't seen regularly mm-hmm. uh, to that point. So you know, he was supposed to be. He was he was a heel then, but there was people with Muda signs in all those shows back then. They didn't. Does the gimmick doesn't always quite go 
how you planned it. Oh, yeah. Even I mean, though it was successful. It's one of those things, you know, there were certain I mean, things. The general rule of thumb. Yeah, when, yeah. Like, not always, because obviously there's, yeah. there's times. But. I mean, Austin is a heel that's so cool that he gets cheered. Yeah, yeah. and see, so that's why I, would, Vince I has had to become the ultimate heel. Because this was yeah. around the time that that line started to get blurred where people were more into the heels, so I couldn't tell for sure if the I mean, cheers... there's some of that with Chono, where, like, Chono's super over, but he is a heel, and he's kind of, he's your Hollywood Hogan or your Ricker Scott Reigns. Steiner of Japan. Where it's like, oh, yeah, we're into this guy but he is getting cheers nut shotting guys so we go to our 12th match Ricky Choshu versus Shinya Hashimoto for the IWGP heavyweight championship and the last time we saw both men was at the G1 Climax 96 episode 214 where Choshu defeated Shinya in a block match and he never got a title shot until what? now. Why not pull Ricky out in front of the Tokyo Dome? Make me he, wait this he's a legend. 62,000 people, man. So the two men starts off feeling out process with Ricky getting the better of a test of strength. Only for Hashimoto to respond with a series of kicks. But Choshu fires back with right hands and a vertical suplex. They trade strikes in the middle of the ring with Shinya getting the advantage after a pair of knees to the midsection, followed by several stiff kicks, taking Ricky to a corner, causing the ref to separate them. Choshu comes back by kicking at the leg of Hashimoto before applying the scorpion deathlock for quite a while. Yeah. But Ricky releases the hold to go back on the attack with multiple lariats that finally knocks Shinya down for a two count. Like, the first Shinya Hashimoto kick is, like, at minute five in this match, which I thought was nice. It's like, oh, we're going to work up to it. He's not just going to go wild. you got to pick your spots. You only got so many of those in you, big boy. Choshu with three more lariats that get a near fall before switching things up with an insulariat, meaning to the back. Okay. okay. Yeah, I was, I was like, like, what the hell is an insulariat? And another couple more regular lariats for a two count. I mean, a lot of the story of this is Hashimoto doesn't go down. Ricky realizes the counts are getting closer, so he decides to continue to go for lariats, only for Hashimoto to chop it away and begin to kick the arm before falling down from the nine lariats he just took. <laughs> He's a big, young, virile man. Shinya continues to work the arm with chops and kicks, taking Choshu to a corner, causing the ref to once again back Hashimoto off, allowing Ricky the opportunity to burst out with chops of his own, causing Shinya to go down. Choshu takes Hashimoto up to a top turnbuckle for a superplex, before a couple more lariats, followed by Ricky heading up top, where Shinya meets him there to bring Choshu down with a superplex of his own. Hashimoto keeps up the attack with a DDT for the pin, and no, Ricky kicks out. So Shinya nails a jumping DDT for a near fall, followed by a brain buster for the pin, and the win. Post-match, the belt's placed around Hashimoto's waist, and he's handed a trophy, celebrating with the fans, before taking the mic to speak in Japanese 
as the show fades to black. I know, Shinya looks pretty emotional. That big win over uh, Toshu in the Tokyo Dome joked him up a little bit. So I ask you gentlemen, what are your overall thoughts of Wrestling World 1997? Great show. There's lots of variation of like match styles. Like nothing, there's like not really any two things that are the same. There's a main event that's like worthy of that title. It's not as like complex as uh, Liger and Ultimo Dragon, and it shouldn't be. These are larger men, and it is a a story of uh, resilience and power, essentially. Where it's like, yeah, how much can you take and keep going? And that totally makes sense considering that Choshu's uh, an older guy. I mean. How many fucking brain busters can he take? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that the closing um, section of that match with the uh, DDTs is just on fire. It's a really nice closing stretch. And there's plenty of other good things on here. Oh yeah. But I'm gonna pass it to Shane. Yeah, this one. Uh, I don't know. There's always a, a good vibe about the the shows from Japan and. The starting matches, I recognized a few people, which is always helpful because coming into the podcast, you know, when I first started up, I hadn't watched much wrestling from Japan, so I didn't know know anybody at all. And, you know, now I I recognized, you know, at least one or two in the first match, you know, then had the the sprinklings of Atani and Chono, Muda, Warrior, all of that. So, you know, it's, it's become more more fun to watch because I'm recognizing more people or remembering more people but then there's those matches where I don't know anybody and you know I just sit there and watch because I don't know who anybody is anyway so I try and picture something and remember something so that when Matt is talking about telling it, the story it's like it. okay yeah that's yeah. who that was I mean there's yeah there's there's still that way for me sometimes too it's like yeah we've seen all the guys in that first match before but I don't yeah. know who all of them are I know who like four of them are uh, or maybe three of them. Uh, the show, I'd say, has a little something for everybody, and that's what I really noticed. It, uh, you know, specifically for me, it had that Liger Dragon match, which I only wanted more and more of last time. So I got what I wanted, and and so much more with it. And it's so nice that the three singles matches are also different. There's like the junior one, and then there's the the two guys and their like evil gimmicks, which honestly is incredibly fucking fun and it, to me it feels like the better version of like the what you want out of an ECW match <laughs> granted it's in the Tokyo Dome yeah. it's like they do the junk and they do big moves and uh, they don't they you don't know, do a run in every match yeah there's chairs that get used but like it all feels a lot more purposeful and I'd like to know a little bit more about the backstory about that uh, match or maybe it was just like this is a great gimmick match for the show. I wasn't sure they were feuding, or it's like, you know what? It's time to bring out Muda and Power Warrior again. Give the people what they want. Yeah, and then of course the last match, it's like uh, kind of a kind of a torch pass in a way. It's like got over on the older guy on a big stage and uh, took a lot to eight fucking forty clotheslines before he could pull it off. But he ate him. He he persevered. The fighting spirit. So I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but I didn't love this show. Like, certain matches did it for me. Yeah. Like, Tajiri Otani, Liger Dragon, both great matches. Actually, I actually really liked the eight-man. 
Amen might be my third or fourth favorite match on the oh, show. Oh wow, I liked it, but it's, I never get too into an eight-man match. I mean, in any real way. I, I totally get it. The Hakushi Jinsei yes. Shizaki match. I really liked great, it. Yeah. I really liked it as well. The final two matches actually were kind of boring to me. Oh, I was I was in it by that point. I was I was ready. I mean, I can see where you're coming from. And I think some of it, especially with the main event, Ricky Choshu is, to, is just boring mm-hmm. to me. Like, literally all he does is a scorpion deathlock and a lariat. Yeah. And, yes, it's the cool. Crowd it, helped it, a like, lot. the taking of the, like, the spot where he, he's taken the nine lariats, Shinya has taken the yeah. nine lariats, and then after he does a move, then he falls down from the beating... I thought that was fun. Yeah. So there's moments in those matches that I do like. But as an overall thing, I think this might be one of the weaker January 4th outings. Because, like, those middle matches, like, other than the Tajiri one, the Big Japan matches, like, we're all just kind of like... No, can, I can agree with Can that. we just get rid of these and, yeah. and move on to the next thing? You know. I think it has a little more of a glow to it for me just because like the the main event I wasn't super crazy about just because I don't know those two all that well but the Power Warrior Muda one caught Mm -hmm. my attention more just because I've seen the two of them fight before and their entrances were enough to just I mean big fight feel I mean it it did have a big fight feel with the the gear like I saw the gear and I was like oh that's that's freaking cool I think Power Warrior is kind of the same for me, though. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of like, I'm just kind of like whatever with him. Like he doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, yeah. Which is it's super weird because like the guys that I really like in current day New Japan are Tomohiro Ishii and Shingo Tagagi, which are just big beefy boys that just like do yeah. the same kind of stuff that Suzuki was basically doing back yeah. then. It doesn't make any sense. I get it in my head. We've watched some great Kinsuke Sasaki matches. Well, I think that's. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, you you know. That might be the problem, though, is whether he's Sasaki or Power Warrior, there's really no difference other than what he's wearing. Whereas Muda, he changes his ring style a little bit, he changes his psychology. I mean, I always like Muda more as a heel than I do of the underdog face. I I agree, because we've watched. I've seen, we saw Muda in those WCW stuff. And we're like, hell yeah, this is a, this is a, this is a blast. And then seeing him wrestle as himself in Japan, it's like, yeah, that was good. But it go doesn't have like, the doesn't have the fire. Pinch his cheeks when he's Muto, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Muda is a badass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to get anywhere near him. He might just <laughs> pit poison in my eyes. But I like that match a lot because it felt like what I want out of ECW sometimes when they pare it down a little bit and make those moments mean a little bit more and then of course there's 60,000 people here so uh, a hot crowd levels everything up a little bit for me personally when you people are freaking out you, it tends to add a little bit more uh, energy to you as the viewer even if it was you know in 1997 <laughs> good Where, where's the smart marks at alright fuck you I think it's time we smark it up. So what are some of the best moments of this show? The return of Hakushi. And that match was great. That match was super fun. It was great. Yeah, that was like 
the better of the two big of the like three. I guess Muda's a, not. He's not a. We don't really I mean, consider him a big strong he's boy. He's thirty at this point. Yeah, but like of the, I guess we'll say three big strong boy matches. Is that the best big strong boy match on the yeah, show? That was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, of the bunch. I think so too. And I liked uh, the other ones um, quite a bit more than you did. But like, still Hakushi and don't even remember the guy's name. That match also had a big fight feel on a smaller scale, just because of the fact that they were kind of both in the similar. They were they were old old samurai boys. Above me, what the hell is his name? Hari. Oh, yeah. there we go. Okay. Like, what is it? Uh. I, I didn't remember. I mean, I just said it that the nine lariats and then doing a move and then falling down, I thought was a was a really cool moment. It because yeah, like, we Choshu's lariats are supposed to be some of the most devastating devastating lariats because that's literally his mm-hmm. finisher. Yeah. So that he spams it a little bit. I think that's probably why I have an issue with Ricky Choshu. Because <laughs> he's just, like, literally all he does. Yeah. And it, but it's your finisher, so it's just like... Make it mean something. Make it mean something. Yeah. It's like Suplex City, only Lariat... Suplex City is, like, really scary. Lariat Land? Land. There yeah, Lariat Thank Land, you. yeah. I'm like, what the hell starts with L? Land of the Rising Lariats. <laughs> Liger Dragon... I love the callback. It's like oh, literally yeah. two minutes into the match, they're the like, well, let's do this the Long Magistral. Like, that's exactly what happened last time. <laughs> You're not getting me this time, Ultimo. I mean, I like most of the things on this show. There's a couple things that I just couldn't care, couldn't really be bothered by, but even some of the stuff where it's like, even the Super Liger Kanemoto thing, the crowd didn't give a shit about it, but I thought it was entertaining and didn't outstay its welcome. And I know you said it's something that they still do to this day, but just the, in that eight-man match, how the three guys held off their opponents while the pin was being made just yeah. so there could be no bullshit. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever watched a multi-man in New Japan. Yeah. And I saw him do that, and I was like, that is so smart. Mm-hmm. Why? Because why would someone just standing on the apron allow his teammate to be... I, I think I mention it all the time whenever yeah. it happens in when we're come, watching WWF or on, WCW. Booker. Like, why are you just standing on the apron? Yeah. Your guy's getting pinned. Uh-huh. Like, but at this point... Like, we, if you don't get there in time, that's one thing. Yeah. But, like... There's so many gotta, guys in the gotta ring. you got to try, yeah. With eight of them, someone's going to get there. Or yeah. they should. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, I've seen probably, like, 300 of those matches. <laughs> at least two hundred of those matches and I'm not always proud of it but I uh, I pick and choose the ones that I watch in current New Japan these days but they do know how to do the multi-man match better than a lot of places how about most disappointing let's mm. roll Inoki out here boys yeah <laughs> Inoki like it's like he's gonna be on the show so and it didn't take up too much time there's things like the the big bald boy match, the Goto and uh, Nagasaki match, uh, where yeah, it's like, it's like that didn't really feel like it needed to be here. Maybe I feel like the ring entrance has lasted longer than the actual match for Anoki. Yeah, that's probably. Kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wants he wants the glory, brother. I mean, he got to hear uh, Anoki Bombay, which is always a. I know that'd be like a half star in my book. <laughs> it was great, great intro. Uh, 
Chin up, Anoki. Chin up. I mean, Chono in the Big Japan, like, why are we having him face a deathmatch guy from Big Japan? I have the answer. Because he, they let him do that because he was going to, they were going to lose uh, the tag belts. So they're like, all right, well, Chono was like, all right, well, give me a, a match against one of these Big Japan guys that I can just make look like a punk and then we can drop the belts. And there's a little bit of an excuse. I had a match. You say that. And he's obviously the super over, too. But it definitely doesn't feel necessary outside of that Chono doesn't want a fucking full-on loss. <laughs> like It's like, hey, he lost, but he got, he got his like solo glory moment as well. Of just looking like an unstoppable badass. Uh, best performer of the night. Hmm. I mean, Muda really turned it on character-wise, for sure. But, and always much love to Otani, but Dragon and Liger, Liger did the damn thing that they've been like, yeah. you know, that they've been promising for yeah. the last six plus months or whatever. And uh, they did it pretty perfectly as far as... I agree. As far as just like, the match was just plotted out to the best of its ability and executed to the best of its ability mm-hmm. time time is it's good when uh, you know good wrestlers get the time to do the thing that they're good at how about most surprising didn't um, really expect Hakushi yeah I was oh, yeah. say that's Hakushi again I'd say Hakushi and then maybe that I didn't think Chono yeah. and those guys and uh, Tenzon would lose the belt just because they're younger guys but I didn't quite realize that you know it's like oh well this is Last glory spot. It's like, I don't think Hiroshi Tanahashi's ever going to win the big boy belt again, but he did it a couple years ago, yeah. and it kind of felt like, all right, that's the, that's the last one, and nobody was mad about it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, of course, of course he gets to do this again. Yeah, of course, I love, I'm a big Tajiri fan from ECW and WWF days, so to get to see him before that stuff. Yeah, really fun for me. I'm well. not super familiar with him uh, in that era, but I will be soon. Uh, so I that's mean, something that's neat. But I he could, obviously had a great match here. I would put money that you will love him in the later days of ECW because him and Mikey Whipwreck are uh, the uno- are what is called the Unholy Alliance. Sounds great. And it, the Reverend Dude from TNA. Oh, James Mitchell. Yes. He, uh, James Mitchell is like their manager. Uh, manager, and it's just super fun stuff that yeah, they do. Yeah, that's cool. That's uh, it's exciting. I mean, you had me at Mikey Whipwreck. And obviously, Tajiri had a great showing here, so I'm excited to see any of that brought into the United States. And now for a look back even further into the history of wrestling. The Dusty Finish... Don Morocco had won the Eastern Championship Wrestling Heavyweight title during the summer of 1992 and would ride his winning wave into the Chestnut Cabaret in Philadelphia on November 16, 1992 to face the surfer, Mr. Sandman. Mr. Sandman, born 1963 in Philadelphia, would debut in 1989 in the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, the precursor. ECW, along with working in Memphis. 
He would make his name facing the likes of J.T. Smith and Tony Stetson before losing his first couple of chances for the ECW belt against Jimmy Snuka and Johnny Hotbody. For his accomplishments, Mr. Sandman would be inducted into the Hardcore Hall of Fame. ECW would then start up their flagship television program, Hardcore TV, in 1993, and a former champion would decide it was time for him to get a rematch. Hmm, Sandman. I mean, it's so funny because it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but we're already in 97, guys, and we've been seeing Sandman since 93. Uh, funny that inducted into the Hardcore Hall of Fame. I don't see any other Hall of Fames <laughs> next to that name. He's hanging up in the rafters of the ECW arena. As he should be. I'm not, not, I will not dispute that. Maybe he, he should actually be hanging up in the rafters. Oh, oh, no. Like he was hanging on a cross? Yeah, yeah. God, I still can't believe that they never put that out. Truly unbelievable. Next week, Royal Rumble 1997. We ready to rumble? Yeah, we're going to Shawn Michaels' hometown, or at least probably close enough to it. It's the a, prodigal son to rumble. turns a man. We're setting, uh, you know, Rumble leads to Mania, guys. The road to WrestleMania is about to begin, y'all. Music from this week's show is The Score by Emerson, Lake, and Powell. And we're going to play Shinya Hashimoto's music, Bakushi Singun by Asumi Suzuki. Five five. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just had to throw that. <laughs> so we do it so often. <laughs> if you like this episode or any of our other ones, please go out there, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts at. Do as Michael says. Five stars or no stars. Come on. We're gonna waste your time being a jerk. If you have any questions, comments, concerns. Oh, we are headed to Texas, so Oh, if you uh, know any special food, beverage, anything like that from the uh, the Texas, specifically the San Antonio area, shoot us a message. Slide into our DMs. Now, what is the official Alamo cocktail? It has to be an Alamo cocktail. Davy Crockett Bear Hat. Yeah, it's a raccoon. It's just raccoon. That's it's just a, it's like just a, it's just a uh, like raccoon hat full of whiskey, <laughs> tequila. <laughs> Uh, it's the South, you know. Oh, okay. Texas. Mm-hmm. They're they're close to Mexico, so they, as much as they want to bitch and moan about the border, they love their tequila. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't they? It's one of the better <laughs> But you can do those things on our email at wrestlinghistoryx at gmail.com or find us on X at wrestlinghistox. That's wrestling H I S T O X. We'll talk to you next week. Later. Now it's like a, an emo screen name. X wrestling histo X. <laughs> Just pretty funny. <laughs>